Our scripture reading this afternoon is taken from Romans 1, first of all. We're going to read Romans 1, verses 16 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes as follows. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that they have made sorry, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened so far. We turn to the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read the verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet And the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's my privilege to preach the word of our Lord to you as that is summarized in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism.
We ended Lord's Day 7 with the articles of the Apostles' Creed. And in Lord's Day 8 we read, How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there's only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Following upon the preaching of God's word, we'll be singing from Psalm 96, verses 3 and 8. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we deal with what's called the doctrine of the Trinity this afternoon. And I wonder if you've ever tried to explain that. How do you explain the Trinity? And is it really explainable? From time to time, you can find catechism textbooks that have a crack at explaining the doctrine of the Trinity and They'll use some kind of analogies, and I'm sure some of you have heard them. You know, there's the idea that, well, Dad, when he comes home, he's a father to the children, he's a husband to his wife, and at work, well, maybe he's an engineer. Three different things. Is that perhaps a way of understanding the Trinity? But of course, any analogy that you can think of is going to fall flat when you try and think it through. Because no, the Trinity is not the fact that God has three distinct tasks. The Trinity is how God reveals himself in his word as three distinct persons and yet one essence. Do you think we can ever get our heads around that? No. And we're asking the wrong question if we try. The questions we ought to be asking is, number one, indeed, how does God reveal himself to us in his word? And then if it is something, indeed, difficult to grasp, like God says, I am one God, and yet I reveal myself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the real question is, God, why? Why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me something that you know I'm never going to be able to get my head around? Why is it so important that I need to know this? And that's the question that Scripture also answers. For Scripture tells us, that God the Father, indeed, is the one chiefly responsible for our creation. God the Son is the person who has come and become human flesh for us to die on the cross in our place. 
Imagine for a moment if we never knew that Jesus really was God himself. How would that impact our faith? If you think about it tremendously, because we would not have the same kind of assurance that our sins really and truly have been paid for by the power of his divinity, as the canons of Dort say. He was able to withstand the wrath of God against the entire human race and pay it off completely. And God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in our hearts, that indeed we may truly have that comfort that God is with us and not far away in some distant part of the universe. So the Trinity is about how God reveals himself to us. And there are many practical implications. But what we want to do this afternoon is think about the three persons of the Godhead in terms of our worship of God and the privilege of being able to worship God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. How easy it is to let that aspect, that crucial aspect of our Christian worship, slip. And so I preach to you this afternoon, worshipping the triune God in church. We're going to look at worship and God the Father, worship and God the Son, and worship and God the Holy Spirit. Well, brothers and sisters, what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism is that God is primarily associated with our creation. And that is certainly true. God made us together with this whole world. And even if that were all that we knew, what would that mean for us? If we didn't, for example, know the Bible, and went through life without any contact with the gospel in Jesus Christ, what, at the day of judgment, would God expect from us? Well, it's that question that the Apostle Paul seeks to answer in the passage that we read from Romans 1. What would you be expected to know of God if you didn't have the Bible? You see, Paul begins his discourse in Romans by saying, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the power of God is in the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone. And it's the power of God for salvation because God's righteousness is revealed in it. But he doesn't explain what that means. What is this righteousness of God? He's going to get to that. He'll get to that in chapter 3. The righteousness of God, of course, is the manifestation of Jesus Christ on the cross and by having faith in him that he pays for our debt, our sins. But what Paul first wants to deal with after having said that is, look, I've told you that the gospel of God is for salvation. You need to understand that you need salvation. You need to be saved. Because 
The default setting on this earth is namely this, that God's wrath, His anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Well, because men in their unrighteousness suppress, literally hold down the truth. And that's what every single person on this planet does without the gospel. They are consciously or subconsciously holding down that truth that God has revealed in His creation. Look at the way Paul talks. They suppress the truth, he says. For what can be known about God, that is to say, apart from the Bible, just through creation, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? Well, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, His majesty in other words, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And by the way, of course, for Paul, the creation of the world occurred at the same time as the creation of mankind, not millions of years before it. Ever since the creation of the world... Through creation, you have been able to see something of God's power. And so, says Paul, people are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but their foolish minds became darkened and futile. And he goes on to say, and so they begin to worship things in this world, in this creation, instead of the eternal God. You see, what's happening, says Paul, is that the truth that you could know by looking at creation and seeing God's power and thinking, wow, somebody has made me, God has made me, at least I should be thankful for that, for the life and for this creation, and I should thank Him. No, that truth is suppressed. It is held down. Anything but will go for sinful mankind. And because the human race began, of course, with Adam and Eve, turned their backs on God, God's wrath, God's anger, is revealed against mankind. And mankind is destined for eternal death unless Jesus Christ intervenes. Yes, God, more specifically God the Father, is associated with creation. But creation in the end is only going to condemn us on judgment day. There's more, however. God the Father has therefore planned our recreation. So when we say that God the Father is associated with our creation, we can think not only of the fact that He created this world, but through His plan of redemption, He has planned to recreate us after the image of His Son. He has planned for our reconciliation with Him. And that's where we go to that second passage that we read the one from Hebrews 12. 
the author to the Hebrews is there comparing Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. And he's thinking of Israel as they came out of their slavery in Egypt and God brought them to himself at Mount Sinai and how scary that meeting with God really was. And he says, look, when we come to meet God in worship, because we're reconciled to him, he's brought us to himself. Wow. That is amazing. We had been kicked out of paradise. And yet, God retrieves us on his own initiative. And so, we have been brought to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. The author is saying, our worship comes before God's eternal throne in the heavens. It mingles with the praises of angels. And that truly is amazing. God recreates us as his people. And so there's even more reason, brothers and sisters, to take worship seriously. What happens when worship becomes something casual for us? And we have a mentality of, oh, give it or take it if I skip church now and then. Does it really matter? Or do we say to ourselves, oh, look, you're feeling a bit tired. I feel a headache coming on. Maybe I went to bed too late last night. Maybe I'll skip church this morning or this afternoon. You know, often we think we can pull the wool over God's eyes and that that works even easier than doing it for our boss at work. I used to have a catechism student in Holland years ago. I'll never forget what he said. He owned his own business. He said, well... I try and look at it this way. Sunday morning, if I'm not feeling all that bright, I'm still a bit tired, overtired maybe, I ask myself, would I go to work? If it was Monday, Tuesday? If my answer is yes, I certainly go to church. You know, if you own your own business, you're always going to work. Worship is something we do corporately. For the God that not only gave us this life in the first place and this planet to live on, but has recreated us as his people to come together to sing his praises. We need to want to worship him. Can you worship God at home? As a family, of course, there's a place for that. But real worship is corporate as a people. You know, I always think of what God writes in Psalm 22, verse 3. It's one of perhaps the most amazing texts concerning worship in the Bible. A very strong image. Yet you are holy... 
You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. God is telling us, in a manner of speaking, my throne in heaven is built from your praises. That's how important they are to me. Well, that brings us this afternoon to worship and God the Son. When the Catechism talks about God the Son as the second person of the Trinity, it speaks of God the Son and our redemption. I wonder how many people could answer the question here, what redemption actually means. I did a baptism visit last week. Perhaps it was because the people were Canadian, not that I'm anti-Canadian, but I think it's a lot of Australians would have the same problem. When I asked them, well, what's redemption? Because it comes up in the baptism formula. You know, we've all got this fuzzy feeling it must be something positive, it's something good, it's something to do with our salvation. But what is it exactly? What does the word mean? And, well, he couldn't answer it. <clears throat> hopefully my catechism students can, and hopefully the catechism students here can too, otherwise you can complain to uh, Reverend Paul. Redemption is literally buying back. That's what it means. When you redeem something, you buy it back. And what's happening, of course, in salvation is that Jesus Christ with his blood, is buying us back so that we can belong to God again. And this is a, a crucial concept in the New Testament, that Christ buys us back with his blood. He pays his blood. Now, there are people that kind of think about that and then ask the question, well, Okay, if Jesus buys us back, and that is indeed what is said in the New Testament, um, who's he buying us back from? The Seventh-day Adventists would give you the answer, oh, we're being bought back from the devil. As if then Jesus would have to pay the devil off so that we can belong to God again. But if you think about the implication, for example, of what we read from the Apostle Paul in Romans this afternoon, there are plenty of other texts that could apply, of course. We're never told in Scripture that we're bought back from the devil, that somebody has to pay the devil so that we can be free to belong to God. The whole problem is not that the devil's got us. The whole problem is that because the devil's got us and because we're sinful, Therefore, God is angry with us. And the payment that has to be made is a payment to take away God's anger, to appease God's anger, to soften it. There's a long word that's used for that appeasement. Paul uses it in explaining this in Romans 3. The word propitiation just means to appease or soften anger. You soften anger by making amends. 
And we can't make our own amends, obviously, for our sin is so great and the consequences that we could never do it. But Jesus Christ has, through his sacrifice on the cross. And that is our redemption. Without the Son, God the Son, we could have no reconciliation with the Father. And so if I come back to that passage in Hebrews, where our worship is described as a worship that comes before God's holy throne in the heavens, what do we see there? But that our worship is a coming to Jesus, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It says, even before that, in verse 23, that we come as the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And that has everything to do with it. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Well, a mediator is really just another word for a priest. A priest is a middleman between God and the people. And so as high priest, Jesus is the middleman, the mediator between God and us. We can't come before God without having that middleman, that mediator, Jesus Christ, who pays for our sins and enables that access to God the Father. In Jesus Christ, we have life. Do you remember that famous incident in the Gospels? The one I like to call bed through the roof man, you know? The fellow that was let through the roof so that he'd be plonked right in front of the Lord Jesus because the room was full and the house was full. And, of course, he wanted to be healed because he was a paralytic. But instead of healing him, Jesus just says, and it's the first time Jesus begins to reveal that he is God in the flesh. Jesus just says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And of course the people sitting there, particularly the Pharisees, they are stunned because they know all too well only God can forgive sins. And they're beginning to think to themselves, who does this person think that he is? But Jesus is revealing, I am not just the Messiah, I am God in the flesh. And I indeed can forgive sins the true mediator. And if our sins are forgiven in God, then we, in Jesus Christ, through being bound to him by faith, we become of the status of firstborns. Now, you kind of need to have a biblical mindset to understand that. What does it mean that we're called firstborn sons? Well, Jesus, of course, is a firstborn son, and if we're engrafted into him, if we become one with him, we become a firstborn. But you might say, well, so what? What does that mean? It means a lot if you think back to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, the interesting thing is, when they're preparing to meet God in Exodus 19, uh, it speaks about the priests preparing themselves as well. So they already had priests. Now, at that time, you've got to remember, the tribe of Levi had not yet been set apart for the priesthood. But it comes a bit later. 
You might ask, well, who on earth were those priests? Well, the simple answer is, and you get that from Genesis as well, they were firstborn sons. Firstborn sons were born to the right of priesthood. And so later on, when the Levites were to take over that role, you might remember at the beginning of the book of Numbers, all the firstborn sons had to line up in one big row, and then all the Levites of the priestly line, of the line of Aaron, would have to line up as well. And there was a big swap, one to one. Firstborn sons swapped out for a Levite. And the reason, of course, that that swap was done was because of the sin of Israel. It was a direct consequence of the sin of the golden calf. After the sin of the golden calf, God had wanted to wipe out the people and rebuild the nation from Moses. Only through Moses' intercession was that prevented. But God then gave the people a test. Everyone who is for the Lord, said Moses, come and stand by me. And of course, the only people that came and stood by him were the Levites. And so God had said, all right, from now on, the priests are going to come from the Levites. And so there was that big swap between firstborn sons and Levites. And any firstborn son born after that had to be paid off. You bought off his innate service to the temple because a Levite had to take his place. That, brothers and sisters, is completely undone in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ becomes our high priest in the heavenly temple. And in him, if we have faith in him, then we inherit also that right to be there before God as a priest in Jesus Christ. We are counted as firstborn sons. In other words, as people who may be there to serve God in his temple. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is implying when he says, well, for you now, in Jesus Christ, your worship is a worship of the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Only in Jesus Christ. There aren't any Levites, you see, in the heavenly temple. All that's completely gone with the ritual laws of Moses and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus is not only the person who died for us. He's also the person that handpicked apostles, gave them that measure of his spirit so that they could with authority speak on his behalf and sent them out into the world to spread his gospel, his message. And use them also, because they speak directly on his behalf, to form what we have as the New Testament. The word of God, through Jesus Christ. And these apostles, they established also the very first churches. They began to appoint also elders to rule in the name of Jesus Christ and to herd the sheep. And we as sheep, we're herded, are we not? Every Lord's Day as we come together to take part in that worship service that as we've read from Hebrews 12 is not just a bit of singing here in Mother John. It's a, 
an act of praise that comes before God's heavenly throne, joining with all Christians throughout the world and departed saints in heaven and angels. That is corporate worship. You know, looked at from that perspective, it is the single most important thing we do every week. And I wonder how often we think of that. We've got so many priorities in life, whether it be in your business or whether it be in your work for the church or as an elder. The single most important thing we do is get together and worship God. Well, that brings me to the third point this afternoon, worship and God the Holy Spirit. Catechism talks about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. That's another big word that we're supposed to know, but often really only have a fuzzy feeling about. Um... A little bit easier to explain, really, because we have in English a word that we kind of all recognize, and that's the word saint. Of course, the meaning of the word saint is a little bit different for us than it would be for your average Roman Catholic, for whom a saint is a very important person who has uh, perhaps been given that honor after his life here on earth. But a saint in the Bible, a saint in the Bible is a holy person. And many of the letters in the New Testament you will see addressed to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Rome, whatever. Because they are the believers. And if the word saint means holy person, that word saint is directly related to the word sanctification. Sanctification comes from the Latin sanctus. Sanctus just means holy. Sanctus, over the centuries, became an English Saint. That's what it is. Sunct in other languages. Sunct in our language. Saint. Holy person. Person belonging to God, in other words. And sanctification then is that process of becoming holy. And that process of becoming holy, belonging to God fully, is a process that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives. And so we call that the process of sanctification. It is about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, making our bodies His temple. It's about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and grieving if we sin, as Paul says at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. The Holy Spirit praying for us when, when we find it impossible to pray, as Paul writes in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit comforting us, as the Lord Jesus had promised his disciples at the Last Supper. It is the Holy Spirit working together with that word. When we focus on that word, when we meditate on it, when we want to learn from it. For as Paul writes in Ephesians 6, we bear the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so sanctification is the process which is worked through our working with that Word as the Spirit then works in and through that Word in our lives. 
And we do that especially corporately too, do we not? As we open that word, as it is read and expounded to us in worship, as we're gathered together as God's people. And so you can see worship truly does have a Trinitarian character. God the Father has called us. God the Son is enabling us to be reconciled and to be here in God's presence. And God the Spirit is working in and through us with that word. You might think how the Apostle Paul characterizes being filled with the Spirit. You know, being filled with the Spirit, we, when we say that, we often think of perhaps the way in some churches, some charismatic churches, being filled with the Spirit has the idea of being able to do something real special like uh, speak in tongues or, or something like that. Well, in Ephesians, Paul also literally says and warns us that we ought to be filled with the Spirit. But have a look at how he fleshes that out. He says in Ephesians 5, the following, Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, says Paul, is being filled with the Spirit from the heart, singing the praises of God together with each other and to each other. For the Spirit enables true and genuine worship from the heart. Well, brothers and sisters, it's time for that reflection moment. How is it with us? And what is our real motivation in coming to church? Do we indeed come here to worship God the Creator, God the Son, the Redeemer, and God the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us? Do we appreciate that this is indeed the most important thing that we do in the week and that we do it together as that community that God has gathered in His Son through His Holy Spirit? I think we're all guilty now and then of looking upon worship in not so elevated a way. But let us be encouraged every week to come together again as we yearn and look forward to the return of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to this world when everything will be renewed and we will be allowed access to a world which has been rid of all the effects of sin and to live truly and wholly for God. Praised be his name. Amen.